Amen. I've been working through the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy with my oldest two. We just put it off and put it off and eventually started working our way. And it's taken us forever because we watch like one hour a month. But this past Monday night, it was my birthday. They were both home. And I was like, hey, we're knocking out two towers tonight. So watched like the last hour of this four-hour odyssey. And it had been a long time since I've watched it. And I'd forgotten about Sam's little speech at the end. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Frodo, the ring bearer who has to destroy this ring in Mount Doom, um, was tempted to give up and quit. And he was tempted to actually give the ring over to a ring wraith. And Sam tackles him, if you remember, in Osgiliath, and then they fall on the ground, and, and Frodo looks at Sam and says, Sam, I can't do this. This is too hard. I want to quit. And then Sam replied with this great speech, I know. I'm not going to do his voice. I would, but I'm not. If we were alone. I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. But we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't because they were holding on to something. What are we holding on to, Sam? (laughs) That there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and is worth fighting for. I thought, great, Jesse just preached Hebrews 11. Uh, the day before, I know I'm preaching 12 and the passage that we're talking about in 12, this would be a great segue and every sermon is a better sermon when you can put a Lord of the Rings quote in there, according to Jesse. And so um, that's, this is a great uh, introduction to, to Hebrews chapter 12. Now all movie quotes eventually break down and aren't helpful, but what we do feel and resonate with in this exchange is the temptation to quit because of the evil in this world and because of the sheer exhaustion of the journey. There's got to be an easier way. Now for the original recipients of this letter, the temptation to quit was even stronger. It wasn't just that the world was evil and the journey was hard, but for them it was the threat of real persecution. Like, can you imagine, with all going on in our world today, in our lives today, can you imagine if we had to add the threat of real persecution? If we didn't have the freedom to do what we're doing right now, if all of our communication was being monitored constantly, afraid that at any moment the government's going to come and seize, arrest, capture, contain, restrain, whatever. It could happen at any day at any time if we weren't careful enough or secret enough. We, we have incredible freedom of religion still, especially in our area. We can do what we want, when we want, how we want it as Christians. But can you imagine if we lived under the constant threat that it could end at any moment, that we couldn't even do this? And the writer of Hebrews would say, and we have brothers and sisters like that around the world right now that are constantly tempted with the threat to quit and assimilate back into the safe culture. Not us, but they... It's true for them. And the writer of Hebrews would say, no, don't turn back. Now, in Lord of the Rings, for Frodo to quit 
And for the ring to not be destroyed would mean the destruction of all that was good in Middle Earth by Sauron, the evil one, or as we like to say in our house, mustard boy, because as Noah says, mustard is the worst and evil, the evil one is the worst. It's true. Those were the stakes in Lord of the Rings. For the recipients of this letter, it wasn't that stark. It wasn't as though if they quit following Jesus, the world would end. Jesus is the king. He has won. He is coming again. His kingdom is, in effect, now and will one day be all that is left. But for the recipients of this letter, for you and me to turn away from Jesus is to lose out on all that kingdom is and all that comes with it not only that in the future but now we miss out on the best life God has come to give us in the here and now because Jesus is better and more satisfying than anyone or anything else you could turn to other than him you could run to other than him we miss out on the future kingdom and all the blessings of being with Jesus and his people forever and we miss out on what Jesus has for us now And to bolster his case, the writer of this letter spent all of chapter 11 going through the history of God's people and giving example after example of God's people choosing faith in the one who is to come, the promised seed of the woman who would one day crush the head of the serpent, even when it meant moving to new lands, being told to sacrifice your only son, building an ark, confronting the most powerful rulers in the world, even when it meant, Hebrews 11, 36-38, mockings and scourgings and bonds and imprisonments, being stoned, sawn in two, dying by the sword, wandering around in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. And they endured all of that before Jesus had ever come. They endured all of that, holding on to this promise of the one who was to come. Hebrews 11, 13 points this out. These all died in faith, Although they had not received the things that were promised, but they saw them from a distance, they greeted them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. How much more should we endure and not quit and go on considering we have the full revelation? And all of that leads us into chapter 12 in the opening verses. A passage I've preached a couple of times in other places, but a passage I've referenced in so many other sermons and conversations, probably more than any other passage in the Bible. It's one of the quintessential summaries of the Christian life, the essentials of how to live as a Christian. So let's read it, and then we'll walk through it. Therefore, since we, have also, uh, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us, Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. Now, the idea of running the race is similar to other places in the New Testament when they talk about living the Christian life, walking in a certain way. This well-known imagery, but in, in essence, it's speaking of how we live. Living the Christian life is walking in a certain way or running a race in a certain way. 
And I want to draw your attention to these five descriptors from these three verses about how we run our race or how we live the Christian life. This is Christianity 101. These are the basics of being a Christian. This is essential for all new Christians to, to learn that this is what the Christian life is like. This is what life is going to look like for you. But it's also something you never get away from. Like you never mature to a point as a Christian where you leave these things behind. In fact, most of the rest of your life as a follower of Jesus is just continuing to learn how to do these five things over and over and over and over. So first, number one, see those who've come before you. Building on the imagery of a race, if you can imagine as a runner coming into a stadium and the stands are are filled with fans cheering you on, So we also are surrounded with a historical cloud of witnesses, chapter 11, who have lived out this life of faith in Jesus and in a way, as examples, are cheering us on. They did it, we were just told, so now you can too. The struggles that you face now that are causing you to be tempted to quit, to run from Jesus to something easier, well, guess what? You're not the first person to struggle. You're not the first person to want to quit. Your situation isn't that unique. And just like all the saints before us who didn't quit but continued on, so can you. And we all know how incredibly powerful and encouraging it is to listen to learn from others who are further down the road from us, who've been there, done that, experienced success and fruitfulness. They've endured, they've persevered through hard stuff. They've faced the worst of life and their faith is intact. Now, this is not saying that you can't, and you can't find this in the Bible, that these saints of old are actually looking down on us right now, watching us live our life. You know, they're like, yeah, great job, Jesse. Oh, why did you do that? That's awful. They're not, they're not watching us like a TV screen. You can't find that anywhere in Scripture, that they're aware of what we're going through right now. Only, only God is. That's not what this is trying to convey. But it is trying to say their life serves as an example to us and an encouragement to us. Now, not to to overuse Lord of the Rings, second analogy from that, but one of the cool aspects of the story is that one of the primary heroes in the story are hobbits, Frodo, Sam, Merry, Pippin. But specifically, these two hobbits, they were some of the most insignificant class of people in all of Middle-earth. In fact, as you watch the movies or read the books, as they continue to travel across Middle Earth and they meet different groups of people, they're always like, who are y'all? We don't even know how to classify you. We're not even aware that there are these things called hobbits. That, that's how insignificant that they are. But yet, they are the heroes of the story. And hobbits from then on could tell this story. And as a group of people, they could and would live with more appreciation and gratitude for who they are as a group of people. We are the hobbits. We are the people of Frodo and Sam. We help save the world from Mustard Boy. Check us out. In a much greater and real way, Christian brother and sister, we walk in the shadow of men and women who faced the worst, suffered greatly, were persecuted and killed, and their faith remained intact. We are Christians. We have millions who've come before us who have walked through the worst that this life had to offer, and they loved Jesus to the very end and were faithful and fruitful in whatever ministry God gave them to do. 
We have all of Hebrews 11 and all the rest of scriptures, plus all the stories that have been passed down in the last 2,000 years. Polycarp of Smyrna in the 150s AD, disciple of the Apostle John. He's being martyred for his faith because he won't offer incense to the Roman emperor, which was a way of saying the Roman emperor is God. I'm worshiping the Roman emperor. He's like, no, I'm not. I'm worshiping Jesus. Only Jesus did what he did and said what he said and accomplished what he accomplished. Right before his death being burned alive, he says, 80 and 6 years I have served him. Which might have meant he was 86. It might have also meant he had served him since he became a Christian for 86 years. He might have been 100 and something. 80 and 6 years I have served him. And he, Jesus, has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And as they began to burn him at the stake, as they pierced him with the spear, he says, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in a company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. And he died being burned at the stake in front of people cheering this on. It's a celebration of the worship of the emperor. And we could go on and on, story after story, William Tyndale and and the, and the reformers and Corey Ten Boom and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And we go on and on. Brothers and sisters today, you can read stories today through open doors who are facing the end of their life if they don't renounce their faith in Jesus and they are faithful to the end. Or brothers and sisters who aren't being persecuted but are facing the worst of this life, cancer, sickness, terminal illness, chronic pain, whatever, and they are clinging to Jesus with all that they have and not walking away. So what you're in right now is not anything more than others before you have walked through. Yes, we need to listen to those who are suffering. We need to hear their voices. We need to validate what they're going through 100%. But the other thing we need to to say is you're not the first one to go through this. Others have gone through similar things and have come through with their faith intact. So can you. So can you. Be encouraged, brother and sister. Secondly, we need to lay aside hindrances and sins. We see this in the second part of verse 1. Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Lay aside hindrances and sins in order to run this race. Now, notice hindrances are distinct from sins. Hindrances can be anything that could slow us down, but isn't necessarily sinful. Good things that become too much of our focus, or they simply distract us from Jesus. Now, I don't think this is referring to, sometimes this is preached in this way, we take good things and make them God things. So we take good things like family and hobbies and work and food and sex and success and ambition, and we turn them into the gods of our heart. That's, that's called idolatry which is clearly sinful. So, so he already says lay aside sin. So if you're taking good things and making them idols in your heart, you're worshiping those things, then that's sin. Lay that aside, obviously. But this is not referring to, to that. This is referring to something that is good but not sinful, distracting and unnecessary. Extra weight you don't have to carry, baggage that you don't need in this life. 
you and I can't say yes to everyone and everything. You and I can't help everyone. You and I can't consume everything there is to consume. We can't do it all. Example from our life, we're taking a short break from fostering. Some of you know this. Uh, At least through the end of the year, it's our first official break in four years of fostering. A few days after Jacob goes home, Jennifer gets a call from a social worker who notices that our name is not on the list. Hey, I noticed your name's not on the list. What's going on? Well, we're taking a break. Well, we got a baby who needs a home. So Jennifer's in this dilemma. Uh, Are we really taking a break? A baby needs a home. A family needs a friend. These people need help. And she, for the sake of our marriage and family, needed to put our oxygen mask on first. We need a break. And so she had to say no to this baby and this family. So in a way, we have to trust the Lord with that. There's another family for this baby and this birth family that's going to help them get through this next season of life. And it doesn't have to be us. Not easy to do that. But we have to realize you can't do it all. You can't have it all. You can't read it all. You can't watch it. I mean, Disney Plus Day, are you kidding me? I'm supposed to watch all of that in the next 12 months from just one streaming service? How is that possible? More information and content being produced, pumped out than ever before in the history of humanity. And at some point, you have to know your limits and say no. Now, this is true of all of humans in our culture. You hear non-Christians talking about this. I heard a podcast uh, yesterday, Working in the Yard. A guy was talking about we have uh, more technology, we're more efficient than ever before. It's supposed to save us all this time. Where is the time at? (laughs) We're not getting more time. We're just filling it up with more stuff. So even non-Christians are are understanding this and saying that there are limits. But this is written to believers calling them to live this hard Christian life in the face of suffering and persecution with endurance. And the writer is saying there will be things, good things, you have to say no to in order to say yes to a healthy, vibrant relationship with Jesus. Guys, there's no formula for this. It will come from the Word of God, the Spirit of God, leading you in conjunction with the community of God's people. Should I say yes to this opportunity, this new hobby, this new habit, this new activity? You adding something means you're saying no to something else or someone else. The ultimate question from this passage is, will it weigh you down, hold you back in your race of endurance with Jesus? Will it distract you from keeping your eyes on Jesus. Now this is where it gets tricky for us, the Crossing Church. Because we like to say, all of life is mission. We're making disciples in the everyday stuff of life. Every single relationship that we're in is not coincidental. It's not happenstance. It's providential. Providential divine appointments with people that we can then share the gospel with, see them come alive in Christ, or we can see them grow in their affection for Jesus as the gospel digs deeper inside of them. Every single relationship, hobby, place we go, it's all mission. We're on mission everywhere we go all the time. So it might be harder for us to see how something can be a hindrance if everything can be turned into mission and gospel opportunities. I remember talking to the elder of another church like us several years ago. His daughter played travel softball, which was an every single weekend trip. Every single weekend he had to be gone. 
He talked to the elders. The church gave the okay. He wasn't the primary teaching pastor. His mission community joined him on mission, and they took life and mission on the road each and every week. And you say, great. That decision was made within the community of God's people. It wasn't in contradiction to, to anything clear in Scripture. Everyone's on board. But I think, and if I would have thought about it at the time, I would like to go back and ask, the second piece to that would be evaluation. So are you actually doing it? You're going on mission with God's people every single weekend in these, this travel softball world, but are you actually building relationships? Are you actually sharing the gospel? Are you actually seeing disciples made? Is there actual fruit that's happening because you're being obedient? Or are you just having fun because it's a lot of fun? You're just joining in with the worship of youth sports that our culture loves to worship. I didn't have those conversations, but that's one way we can look at it and potentially be healthy or not healthy. So it might be harder for us to crossing church to see what is truly a weight or a hindrance when all of life is mission, but those are the kind of conversations we have to have. What is more obvious but sometimes equally hard here is to lay aside sin. When we come alive in Christ, we are set free from the penalty of sin, we are set free from the power of sin, but we are not set free from the presence of sin. We can say no to temptation and sin. We can have some degree of victory over particular sins, but because of our flesh, our enemy, and the world, we still sin. Until Jesus returns or we go home to him, that is the reality. We will still sin. That should never create apathy or a lack of desire to fight against sin or lay aside sin. So when we're confronted with our sins, when the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the people of God help us to see our sins, as a child of God, our hearts will eventually be burdened to repent and seek Jesus for cleansing and forgiveness. Now initially we may want to hide. We want to justify, excuse, explain, and continue to sin. But eventually, because you are his, he will break you down and bring you back. We'll actually look at this next week. God disciplines those that he loves. If there never arises in your heart conviction and a desire to repent and run to Jesus, if you are 100% comfortable in your sin, hiding in your sins, enjoying your sins, that is one of the greatest reasons to pause and say, is Christ really alive in me? Or am I just assuming my salvation? Am I just pretending to be a Christian? I'm just a religious person. Continued indulgence in sin will 100% keep your eyes from focusing on Jesus. It will keep you from wanting to continue to run this race with endurance. It will keep you from wanting to stay engaged. I think one of the great temptations of this age is the temptation of the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus to be applauded for how faithful and devoted he was, only to have Jesus expose his love of money and possessions. And in the end, he chose to keep his financial security over following Jesus. And Jesus, in Luke 19, let him walk away. If you had all the financial security that you needed and wanted today, but didn't have Jesus... Would that be enough? Would you really, our world would say, yes, of course. I can buy whatever I need. I can buy all the security and freedom I need with money. But for you, would that be enough? Do you really love money and security and freedom and power that financial security gives you more than you love Jesus? Or if Jesus tells you to give it away generously to help others, like you don't have to bat an eye. 
Okay. Where? To who? How much? Yes, of course. These would be really good conversations to have for missional communities and DNAs as we gather this week. Where do I lay aside hindrances and sin in order to run this race better? Would you be willing to make a list of potential hindrances in your life? We all have them. Even if you don't need to lay them aside, it's a list of what could be a hindrance if you're not careful. Potential sins. Share those with community that we're in. But then hear from that community of God's people about potential blind spots or hindrances and sins. By God's grace, he can help us be a people who easily, willingly, with no hesitation, lay aside anything that keeps our eyes off of Jesus and keep us from running this race well. Thirdly, we run with endurance. The goal of the race we run is not how fast we finish, but that we finish. Speed isn't a value. Endurance, perseverance, not quitting, staying in the game is what's valued. Verse 3 says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. There's something to be said simply for staying around, staying in the game, not quitting. The word for race in the original language of the New Testament is agon, which we get our word agony from. This is the imagery the writer uses for this Christian life, agony. Sign up here. Who wants to get in on some of this? Yay, sign up for more agony. So then it makes sense for him to emphasize endurance over speed. It's like the cars you see riding around with the bumper stickers or the stickers on their window, 13.1, 26.2. I have yet to see one of those that says also first, second, third, 598th. As someone who finishes a half marathon or a marathon, it doesn't matter what place you came in. You finished it. It's an incredible accomplish, accomplishment just to finish the race. And it's the same for us in the Christian life. In one of Paul's last writings before his death, he says in 2 Timothy 4, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all of those who have loved his appearing. Go read 2 Corinthians 12 and all the reasons why Paul could have been tempted to quit. An incredible long list of persecution and suffering he had to endure. Yet at the end of his life, he says, I have finished the race. There is a growing popularity with deconstructing one's Christian faith that is causing some to completely abandon the faith. As the sins of the church are brought into the light, sexual abuse, abuse of power, financial abuse, racism, injustice, political idolatry, corrupt pastors and leaders. As God is cleaning house by cleaning his house, it's really tempting to just walk away and be done with it all. And some are doing that, and in the process, they're just walking away from Jesus and Christianity, failing to see or admitting the difference in the beauty and sufficiency of Jesus and the, the sinfulness of his followers at times. Any one of us, anyone in this room could fail, compromise ourselves, abandon the faith, reject orthodox teaching, 
disqualify ourselves as a pastor, elder, leader. No one in this room is above that. No one is 100% safe from that. But it will never be because of something that is wrong with Jesus or his word or what he wants and desires for us, his people. It will always and only be because we failed. We sinned. We built a life of lies and secrecy and hiddenness. We began to desire and love sin more than we desire and love Jesus. And we chose to walk away. And by God's grace, help that never, ever to be anyone in this room or anyone who's ever a part of the Crossing Church. Let us all be old and gray and wrinkled and full of life as we lay before the people we love and we're able to look them in the eye and say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Even having repented of hurt we have caused or sins we have committed, we never left Jesus, but we ran to him for cleansing and forgiveness. And no matter the suffering or persecution we face, we stayed in the race. And by God's grace, let us spur one another on to do the same so that when we see one of our own start to falter, we come to their side, we grab them, put their arm around me, let me help you along, let me carry you along, let me walk with you until you're strong enough to walk on your own again. God, help us be this church. Make us this kind of church. The fourth quality necessary for this race called the Christian life is to keep our eyes on Jesus. Chapter 11 was filled with examples of faithful saints but Jesus is the supreme example. Not only is he the supreme example, but he is the source and perfecter of our faith. As it says there in verse 2, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is not only the example, but he is the engine behind our faith. He shows us the way. We look to him to live like him, but it's not just pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and trying hard to do better. It's not just WWJD, what would Jesus do in this situation? Okay, I need to do that. He is also the perfecter of our faith. He is at work in us to grow and mature and help our faith get stronger and stronger until one day our faith becomes sight and we are with Jesus and we see him and enjoy him forever. And so when you see Jesus as your example... We see him serving others selflessly. We see him speaking truth in hard places. We see him loving and going after the oppressed, the marginalized, those who are thrown away by society. Okay, I see him confront religious hypocrisy. I see him with deep compassion for the hurting and broken of this world. I see him continually over and over investing in immature, hard-headed, bone-headed disciples I see him allowing the power of God to be used to show and share his love with others. I see all of that. I want to be, I want to do all of that. Okay, Jesus, you live inside of me as I cling to you, do this work in me and through me to others. And, and the, the good news of the gospel is, okay, he does it. <laughs> it's amazing. We see the life of Jesus. We're like, hey, I want to be like that. Okay, you can. I'm alive inside of you. I can do these things through you. Jesus tells us in John 15, Remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself, unless it remains in the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him 
produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. It's that simple. Stay connected, abiding, close to Jesus, and you will produce much fruit. It will happen. You try and live this life without Jesus. You try put him on a shelf, keep him in a convenient place where you can pull him out every now and then when you need him, go your own way. He says you will actually accomplish nothing. Now, some work only Jesus can do. We see this in this passage. Only Jesus endured the cross. Only Jesus despised the shame of the cross. Only Jesus was then exalted to the right hand of the Father. We can suffer shame and persecution. We will one day also be exalted, but not to the same degree as Jesus suffered, not with the same glory Jesus receives. It's similar, but not identical. But there is a lot of the work Jesus did do. In fact, he says we would even do greater works than he did. Because there's more of us, and we can reach more people with the works of Jesus. And then the world experiences the presence of Jesus through his people. The world sees the reality of Jesus lived out through the people of Jesus. They experience Jesus through his people. I was getting ready Friday night. Me and Emma Grace were going to watch a volleyball match at ULM. And Noah and Trey were in the bathroom while I was getting ready. And Noah says, hey, Dad, where's Jesus? But just take a second and imagine in your mind how you would answer a four-year-old. Think about it. And then write down your answers and pass them this way so I can do a better job next time. It's like, well, I've been studying this passage and, and working on this sermon all day. I said, well, buddy, you know, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And he's also alive inside of his people. He's kind of everywhere. And so when we love like Jesus loves and I start to give him a hug, it's like people can see Jesus in us. And he says, well, I want to go see Jesus at the Father's side. I was like, well, one day we will. When Jesus comes back or, or when we die, we go home to him. He then starts to tell me, well, I want to die, so I can go see Jesus now. And then Trey starts jumping up and down the toilet. Yeah, die, 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 die. Because <laughs> she just mimics them, whatever they do. I'm like, okay, we're done here. i got to leave, out of here. But b both of those realities are true. Jesus is next to the Father, and Jesus is alive inside of us. It's one of those things that only God can do, which makes him God and not us. And so we see and follow Jesus' example, and then we depend on Jesus' life, his engine inside of us to live it out. We can honor and celebrate fellow saints who get it right and demonstrate faith. Sometimes they do it really well, but not, at all, not all the time. All those people listening to Hebrews 11 also had all of their sins described in the Old Testament. For example, if Jacob weren't listed in Hebrews 11, you'd have a hard time convincing someone he was a believer from what's recorded in Genesis. All of them fell short, but Jesus never did, which is why even the good we see in people brings us to worship Jesus, because all the good that we see in people is because of Jesus at work in our world. He is the one who makes all the good happen. And when people fail us, and they will all the time, eventually they will, then we can run to Jesus as our supreme source of hope and joy. He never lets us down. And that brings us to the last quality, and that is to pursue joy in obe obedience. The passage says, for the joy that lay before him, <clears throat> for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. Now for Jesus, there was no joy in the pain itself, 
It wasn't like Jesus was being beaten, spit on, mocked, his beard ripped out of his face, the crown of thorns crushed into his head and face, the whip tearing the flesh off of his back. And he's like, oh, this feels so good. This is delightful and joyful. No, pain was pain. Pain was pain. It hurt. It was incredibly painful. The joy wasn't in the pain. The joy was in the obedience. What the obedience was going to bring about, what the obedience was going to accomplish in the redemption of broken and lost sinful humanity and a sin-cursed creation, our obedience can and should create in us similar joy. If running your race, even through suffering and persecution, doesn't ultimately result in an increase in joy, something is off. Something is off. Our motivations for obedience are off. If we've made obedience simply doing more, trying harder because we have to earn God's approval or we have to impress others so they think much of us or because I'm a pastor or elder in a local church and it's expected of me or it's based in fear. We have to be good so we don't lose something. If any of those motivations for obedience are what is driving our obedience, we will not have joy. The joy that we can and should have from our Father. So, so going back to John 15, picking up on that passage in verse 8, my Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands... You will remain in my love just as I've kept my father's commands and remain in his love. Verse 11, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Isn't that amazing? The whole preceding 10 verses about abiding in Jesus and producing fruit. I have told you these things. Why? So my joy will be in you and your joy will be made complete. This is why our vision statement as a church is we desire all people to enjoy Christ always. There is a lot implied in that, but that is the end result. We want all people to find their deepest joy in Christ always in all of life, no matter what they face. Being a Christian Living this life, running this race, is not supposed to make us the most miserable people because look at how much we're doing. We're here. They're not here. I came early and put up chairs. Look at me. And we're just miserable in our obedience. No one cares as much as I do. That's not the Christianity we're trying to proclaim to our city. That's not good news. Who wants to get in on that? Just more miserable religious people. No, even in the worst, even through suffering and persecution, the joy of obedience, the joy of Jesus, the joy of our Father deeply resides in us. And we experience life differently, not this fake, happy, clappy emotion where you can't also grieve and mourn the brokenness of this world, but we also don't stay swallowed up in despair and hopelessness. There's something different about this, people. And so, brother and sister, how is your obedience leading to a greater increase in your joy? How is the work of Jesus inside of you increasing your joy and your enjoyment of your Father and all that your Father has given you? It's another great question to discuss in your MCs and DNAs as you gather. How much joy are you living with right now? How would you answer that? 
And do you see and believe that your joy isn't dependent on circumstances, but on the presence of Jesus inside of you? Seeing those who've come before us, laying aside anything that would slow us down or distract us, and keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, we run this race with endurance until we cross the finish line one day with hearts and souls full of joy that transcends all the junk we had to endure as we pursued Jesus with all that we are. Let's be this, church, by God's grace, for his glory. And then let's do this. If you're here and this is not your life, you've never experienced this life with Jesus, you sounds kind of foreign, you've never said, That's, that is who I am, that is who I want to be, but you long for it today, but you feel like there's this disconnect because you've never truly trusted in Jesus and began to follow him, guess what? Jesus is here. And he's opened your eyes to see that. And he's offering to you salvation today. If you'll turn from your sins and trust in him, let us know so that we can come alongside of you and say, okay, this is how you run this race. You got a bunch of people trying to do it. Done it for a long time, short time, with some success, a lot of failure. But by his grace, we're stumbling forward. And our hearts are growing in affection for Jesus. Father, thank you that this is the people that you've made us and you are making us. Day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, we look back and we see transformation. We see growth. And we're so thankful. It's only by your grace. It's only by the work of the Spirit and the Word and the, and the community of God's people that that's happening. So you really get all the praise and glory. No one can really just pat us on the back and say it's all because of us. It's really all because of you. Father, I pray that, that this morning through your word and through your spirit, you, you have spurred us on to, to take another day that we want to get back in the race and get after it. Another day we want to endure with joy. Another day we want to lay aside sin and hindrances and fix our eyes on Jesus. And, and you're going to be sufficient to give us what we need tomorrow so that we can wake up on Tuesday to do it again. And Wednesday to do it again. And we'll just keep running this out as your people. And I pray for anyone who doesn't know you in this way, that today would, would be the day of their salvation. That they would see that Jesus alone is the Savior and they would trust in him for life now and life eternal. Do that for your glory by your power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.